Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I'm just so excited to have my next guest here. Uh, we just talked um, not that long ago uh, for part one of our conversation, where uh, Mr. Thomas Murphy, anthropologist, um, came on to talk about his adventures amongst the evangelicals, and we had a fun conversation. Uh, Thomas, uh, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Steve. It's great to be here again. Uh, I'm coming to you from uh, the traditional lands of the Stahobes or Snohomish people, one of the Coast Salish nations of Western Washington and Western British Columbia. Uh, and it's a privilege to engage in a little book review. Yes, this is going to be an interesting episode because we're going to be kind of doing like a a, a presentation and a running book review, which should be fun. Um, now, as I had told you last time, uh, you know, Thomas was going to come on to address uh, Rod Meldrum after he would make his appearance on my program and uh, give his presentation about the Heartland model. Um, and, and so I gave him the opportunity to make his presentation. And then Thomas watched the program and then prepared his notes. And uh, then we decided that we're going to now film this uh, response to it, which I think uh, is in the spirit of this program, we want to do more of a civil uh, conversation. And that's really important to Thomas. And so that's what we're going to have. We're going to have a civil conversation about a subject that many people, for whatever reason, in particular, the Heartland model seems to bring out a lot of passion in people. And I think it's just time that we start talking. And, and maybe have a more civil uh, civil dialogue. So Thomas, why don't we just uh, hop right into it, man? Uh, you're titling this an anthropologist reviews the Heartland model. So Mr. Anthropologist, let's review it. Yeah, so uh, yeah, the way I would like to frame this discussion is as kind of a, a, a book review of three books. Uh, the first of those would be uh, Rod Meldrum's uh, Rediscovering the Book of Mormon Remnant Through DNA. Uh, which is a response to that video we discussed in our last interview, uh, DNA versus the Book of Mormon. It uh, doesn't engage quite as much the Bible versus the Book of Mormon, uh, but uh, that would actually uh, help uh, if, if they had. Uh, but the second book uh, that I want to look at is uh, Rod Meldrum's Exploring uh, the Book of Mormon in America's Heartland. And the third uh, is uh, Jonathan Neville's uh, Moroni's America, mm -hmm. the North American setting for the Book of Mormon. And so kind of a collective review of these uh, three books is the, the approach that, that I'd like to, to take. Well, and I, good. I wanna begin with a kind of the, the things I find valuable uh, in, in these works or my positive uh, analysis. And I began with the kind of the aesthetics, uh, especially of, of this of this book, the photographic book. It's just it's just a beautiful book. It's a great coffee table book, ironically, <laughs> for Mormons. Uh, but you know, it, it's great for that in, in terms of the pictures that are there and the, the layout and the display. It's just it, it's beautiful. I and my second positive evaluation is is a very general one. And it's that I really appreciate the way that these three books are helping to change the narrative about uh, the Book of Mormon. And they have rejected the view that I grew up with, uh, that Lamanites are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. Now in 1981, that perspective was actually incorporated into the Book of Mormon. 
I into the introduction of the Book of Mormon, I and was part of what I grew up with uh, reading was that uh, Lamanites were the principal ancestors of the American Indians. That view, of course, ran into trouble with the rise of uh, genetic uh, research. And when uh, Simon Southerton and I began publishing on DNA in the Book of Mormon, uh, the church had to reevaluate uh, its perspective. And, and our publications were probably not as impactful as that, that video we discussed from Living Hope Ministries, DNA versus the Book of Mormon, which really reached a much broader audience, millions of people as we discussed, uh, to raise the profile of, of this problem. And so, you know, for most of uh, Latter-day Saint history, uh, the default assumption uh, was that the Book of Mormon described the origins of all American Indians uh, from North and South America, what's often called a hemispheric model. And that was sort of the default assumption uh, that was at one time even incorporated into the footnotes uh, of the Book of Mormon in the 1879 and 1911 editions uh, where Orson Pratt had inscribed uh, hemispheric geography into the text itself. Uh, and that's where there's kind of an interesting, I, I think a strength, but also a little bit, uh, it, it could be stronger. And that is that the Heartland model is in contrast to the other dominant model in, in, in uh, Mormon thought, which is the Mesoamerican model that had begun to replace the, it had begun to replace the, the hemispheric model. Actually, it, it first appeared in uh, the early 20th century in, the, in what the RLDS church would, uh, the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that would eventually become the Community of Christ. Uh, that's where a, a more limited uh, geography uh, with a Mesoamerican setting first appeared. And it didn't get a lot of uh, traction in LDS circles. Uh, some discussion in, 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 in the 50s and, and 60s, but it really wasn't until the 80s uh, that it really got a lot of traction in the LDS church with an ensign public, uh, publication by John Sorensen, for example. Uh, but despite the fact that it was rising, that Mesoamerican model was rising, uh, that at the same time, there was kind of a dual message coming from the church. The same time that they were had this cautious embrace of the Mesoamerican model, they changed the introduction to the Book of Mormon to, to be more defensive of a hemispheric model. And so that, that tension was playing out until the DNA research uh, came to the fore. And that the DNA research just obliterated the hemispheric model. And, you know, I mean, demonstrated that it, it's, it absolutely just can't be true. And so the, 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 the church had to uh, come up with a new approach. So the LDS church's response uh, in uh, the early 2000s uh, was in 2007 and, and then in 2013, uh, they edited the introduction to the Book of Mormon to take out that Principal and the Lamanites were the principal ancestors of the American Indians to say they were among the ancestors of American Indians. 
And so that was done in 2007 in the Doubleday edition of the Book of Mormon, and then 2013 in the, the main LDS uh, edition of the Book of Mormon. And so what the, these three books do is, is contribute to that dialogue by introducing, instead of a Mesoamerican limited geography, a North American limited geography to propose that, uh, because we, we know that uh, nearly all Native Americans uh, can trace, the, can find their closest relatives in, in North Asia, uh, that uh, they couldn't have come from uh, the ancient Near East, uh, or as the Book of Mormon uh, seemed to describe uh, for generations of Mormons. And so this is, is really the more, more, most prominent now articulation of a limited geography for the Book of Mormon within North America. So I just have a, I just want to go back a little bit because yeah. you had the, I was under the impression that the Mesoamerica model became pretty dominant earlier than the 80s only because you had the Tria Life Stella and you also had uh, Ferguson making the expedition down to find the Book of Mormon lands. I was under the impression that they were kind of pinpointing Mesoamerica um, like by the 1940s or 50s that was starting to move in that direction. I, you had Milton Hunter, for example, and, and stuff that were, was writing at that time, but they, they were in, in the sense that they were considering Mesoamerica, but they weren't articulating as clearly a limited geography. Got it. So they were considering a Mesoamerican setting. Uh, yes, mm -hmm. but uh, that wasn't necessarily exclusive of uh, a North American setting. Got it. Uh, and so that over time, that exclusivity grew. And, and that, when I pinpoint the 80s, what I'm pinpointing is the willingness of the church to take these ideas that have been circulating in scholarly circles and put them in an official church publication, the Ensign. Got it. That's what happened in the 80s, but it, it was a multi-decade movement, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you're right to point out that there were discussions occurring much earlier but they were primarily in the scholarly community rather than in the official organs of the church. Okay, interesting. Well, let's continue on. Yeah, and so uh, what, what this Heartland model does that I think is critical for the, the, the furthering of, of Book of Mormon studies uh, is that it, it draws attention back to the original setting of the Book of Mormon. And what I mean by the original setting, where the Book of Mormon came from. Uh, and we often frame that in terms of coming from uh, Palmyra, New York, or Manchester, or Hill Cumora, you know, in, in, in terms of using what I would call colonial uh, geography. Uh, a, a, another way to frame that is that the Book of Mormon came from Seneca territory. Uh, Seneca being one of the uh, six nations of the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois. Uh, and so if we place it more in indigenous uh, geography, uh, the Book of Mormon came from a very specific place. And so they're trying to shift that perspective back to that place. And that's important uh, because it, it is actually more consistent with the historical record and the development of ideas within Mormonism. And so the earliest uh, readers of the Book of Mormon 
uh, Joseph Smith's contemporaries, they saw the Book of Mormon very much in terms of their experience in Western New York and in Ohio and Illinois later. And actually, after uh, the LDS got out to Utah, they also read the Book of Mormon very much within the context of Utah's uh, indigenous uh, nations. And, and so it, it kind of reshifts the focus by pushing back towards that place where the Book of Mormon actually came from. So in that respect, when we contrast the Heartland model with the Mesoamerican model, the Heartland model is more true to the historical sources. And so the, the Mesoamerican model has to, uh, it has to kind of reinvent the story. And they try to do that by some references in early church periodicals to John Lloyd Stevenson, Stevens' work on Mesoamerica uh, and uh, Jonathan Neville in particular pushes back on that by, by trying to look at it within when the context of those, that, that early documentation. And he provides some evidence that Joseph Smith himself might have been reticent to uh, fully embrace a, a Mesoamerican setting in the way that other uh, editors of church magazines were. So that, that's an interesting contribution to, to the discussion. And what I see, again, as valuable is that when we look at the Book of Mormon in contact, contrast to the archaeology of, of North America and the archaeology of Mesoamerica, and I'm one of the few people that have the, the good fortune of being able to participate in uh, anthropological fieldwork in both settings, uh, is that the descriptions of earthworks and fortifications in the Book of Mormon are actually much more consistent with the archaeology of North America than of Central America. And so drawing attention to that fact uh, is an important contribution of these three books. And they point out uh, that the images that, you know, I used to read and see, there used to be pictures in, the, in some of the editions of the LDS Church's editions of the Book of Mormon that had uh, Mayan and, uh, and other uh, Central American uh, ruins. Uh, and uh, they point out that these, uh, these classic Maya ruins that not only appeared in the Book of Mormon, but also appear in a lot of the literature of the Mesoamerica uh, advocates are from the classic Maya period, which is actually much later than the Book of Mormon. So just real uh, quick, the, the Temple of the Cross, as they entitle it, is this uh, yeah. later Mayan, uh, as you were describing? Yeah, so many of those images are from a later Mayan period. I'd have to look up that specific one. To, okay, and this to is from clear. this uh, classic yeah. blue uh, Book of Mormon has uh, Mesoamerica, also has a Machu Picchu in here as well. So, Yeah, and so I think it's important to, to draw that attention to the, the timing. Of, of the the classic Maya is actually a post Book of Mormon uh, process. And so they, they do a good job of pointing that out. I, I agree with, uh, with advocates of the Heartland model that the Book of Mormon's narrative and its prophecies do not support the genetic dilution argument proposed by American, Mesoamerican advocates and by the LDS Church's essay on the Book of Mormon. 
And I think this needs a, a little picking apart to, to, to help your audience understand. Uh, so the, after uh, Simon and I uh, published these, th this research on DNA in the Book of Mormon, uh, a number of uh, folks from uh, BYU and, and farms uh, began uh, publishing uh, some responses suggesting that, well, yeah, we acknowledge that there's no evidence of an ancient Near Eastern connection among living American Indians, but it's possible that there once was such a connection and that that connection has been lost over time. And that, that's essentially the position taken by the, the, the church's essay, which was its original version was authored by Hugo Perego and uh, an Italian geneticist who, who worked in, in Utah. And this, this viewpoint is problematic in some key ways uh, in that the Book of Mormon is very literal and detailed about seed and about the passing on of genetic inheritance, although it doesn't use the word genetic inheritance, use the term seed, right? And, uh, and descent, the descendant populations uh, of the Book of Mormon that the prophecies are about uh, are prophesied to, to live into today's time and, you know, to the end of time. And that idea that the genetic traces of uh, the Lehite, uh, Mulekite, and Jaredite parties would have disappeared is inconsistent with the prophecies uh, and the narrative of the Book of Mormon. And so I think uh, the, the Heartland advocates are right on target here is that that's a, a fundamental flaw of the Mesoamerican model and of the LDS Church's essay. I would agree with the Heartland advocates that North America is more fruitful ground for understanding the Book of Mormon. But I agree with it for, for somewhat different uh, reasons. And, and I, I, I think that the my focus is much more on the indigenous narratives uh, in terms of what were Haudenosaunee, uh, Seneca, and Oneida, and Mohegan and Mohican uh, authors and spokespersons, what were they saying uh, and at, at that time? And I think that reading the Book of Mormon within the context of uh, 19th century America is critical. And I would point out that this is really where a lot of the, the best work in Mormon studies is occurring today, is, is looking at the Book of Mormon within that 19th century context. And it's, it's being done uh, by people at BYU, as well as by scholars outside of Mormonism, some are even non-Mormons. And they're coming together around an important understanding. And that understanding is that whether you take the Book of Mormon as history or scripture or allegory, it, whatever your approach is, that the Book of Mormon speaks to a specific audience. And that specific audience is 19th century America. So if you want to understand the Book of Mormon, you need to understand 19th century America, no matter what your position on the historicity of the text is. And I just want to just 
interject that, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about is, is I've been having this dialogue is mm -hmm. when scholars, biblical scholars look at the, the scriptures, the most important audience is the, uh, the, what's called the reception history. And the most important right. audience is the audience that received the text first. Uh, I care more about what the Colossians and the Corinthians actually thought of the letters that they received and how they interpreted it rather than a Pope in 500 AD. And yeah. that's kind of how I, how I look at it as I look at that initial audience. And I've, I've made this comparison before, you know, Brigham Young and Sidney Rigdon, they get their scripture, they get their Book of Mormon and they look at it and they look at the, the mounds and they say, that's the history of those people. And that's mm -hmm. crucial, crucial to the very beginning of Mormonism. If, if there's, I look at it this way, no Native American mounds, no Book of Mormon. Right. You know, and the, the thing that, I would, you know, really like to see, because I think that the, the Heartland advocates here, Meldrum and Neville, for example, are making important contributions here. But what I don't see is a dialogue with uh, the people say that are the, the scholars in the academy that are behind uh, books like uh, Producing Ancient Scripture uh, that was published by University of Utah Press or Americanist approaches to the Book of Mormon by Oxford University Press uh, that are looking at that 19th century text. There's not a lot of dialogue occurring between the Heartland folks and uh, the the people in the academy. And I'd like to see more of that. And hopefully this 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 interview helps to facilitate that. Another thing I'd like to compliment the the firm foundation that's behind the the Heartland model on is their willingness uh, to invite uh, Native American speakers to their events. And I think in this respect, they're doing a better job than the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies did or the Interpreter Foundation is doing now, uh, the advocates of the Mesoamerican model. I, I would like to see a, more, a greater diversity of Native voices rather than just uh, Native people who, are, who, who believe similarly to uh, what Meldrum and, and Neville uh, think. I think that, that the dialogue would be increased by, uh, and the insights would be increased by inviting more diverse Native voices. And then particularly, I'd like to encourage Native Christian voices, because there's, Native Christians are wrestling with some of the same questions that come out in the Book of Mormon. Like, what is uh, Jesus's relationship with Native Americans? And, and that, that question, there's an opportunity for dialogue here that I'd like to see more of. And kind of my, my final uh, uh, strength that I wanna emphasize is really coming uh, as much from your interview of, of Jonathan Neville uh, as the text themselves. Uh, and in, in your interview with him, he expressed uh, more clearly than he does in the text his idea of multiple operating hypotheses. Rather than uh, seeing himself as just an advocate of the Heartland model, he's open to seeing himself as an advocate of multiple models. Here's one that needs to be considered alongside others. Now, he's not, he wasn't as articulate about what are those other uh, alternative hypotheses. And I'm, I'm gonna give one at the end of this interview. Uh, that I think needs uh, greater consideration. But I think the, it, the spirit of this idea of multiple operating hypotheses is, is a great one and one that needs to be encouraged. 
It also leads me to, to wonder about uh, something very specific. Uh, and that is, I, I wonder how Neville would compare and contrast his perspective of multiple operating hypotheses without uh, the Taos uh, Pueblo uh, scholar, P. Jane Hafen, who writes a, a somewhat similar idea uh, in the afterword of this book, Decolonizing Mormonism. What uh, Jane Hafen advocates is that we take more seriously in uh, Book of Mormon studies, indeterminate versus determinate views of origins. Uh, an indeterminate view, which is common in indigenous communities, allows for multiple origin stories uh, and recognizes that the stories are a means to an end. They're a teaching tool. They're not the end itself. Uh, and so that the stories don't have to be literally true to be uh, to teach an important lesson, okay? To teach a religious principle or concept or idea, uh, and or even an ecological idea, for example, which many do. Uh, and this approach also has a very important uh, role in in diplomacy. It, and, and I want to, I, I talk about that in this, in this book as well. I have an essay in this book about my experiences traveling on, on tribal canoe journey. For over a decade, I've been traveling with uh, Coast Salish nations on this uh, annual pilgrimage where we, we go from uh, our home locations to a First Nation or, or Native American tribes reservation or historic site that we converge on every year. And that kind of moves around. Uh, we've you know, had many sites here in the US and many up in, uh, in Canada. And the one I write about in here is really a trip to Bella Bella, uh, which is from where I'm at almost halfway to Alaska. Uh, and we're paddling about 500 miles in these canoes. And as we go along, uh, more, more tribal nations join us. We sp spend the night at a, a tribe or First Nations homeland. They feed us, take care of us, and then uh, share their stories. And we share our stories and songs with them. And we progressively get a larger and larger group until we converge on that final destination where we have a big potlatch, a whole uh, gifting uh, of, of material items as well as uh, cultural items, uh, things like uh, crafts that, that, that have been made uh, and things like songs and dances and, and stories. And in this setting, this diplomatic setting, the stories that are shared by the guests are not viewed as in conflict as those shared by the host, even though they may differ in detail. Uh, and so, there's a, a tolerance for different perspectives that, you know, when you're in somebody else's land, you give deference to their story. But when they're in your land, they give deference to your story. And both are treated as equally valid and equally true. Uh, and that's a very different approach than Mormons typically apply to the Book of Mormon where they often treat it in a very colonizing manner as, it is, as if it's the one and only true history of ancient America. Uh, and Jane Hafen is trying to articulate an indeterminate model 
that I think uh, should be in dialogue uh, with Neville's uh, multiple operating hypotheses. Uh, it, another interesting result of an indeterminate approach is that it allows for both scientific and cultural explanations of, of origins. Uh, and it doesn't require that one exclude the other. It also provides a space for the recognition of allegory, of metaphor and parable, uh, rather than taking everything literally. You know, it sounds to me that uh, we could learn a lot about, uh, yeah. our society could learn a lot about maybe taking these approaches. Uh, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with the channel. I kind of just kind of accidentally stumbled into that, but I think yeah. that's kind of important. Yeah, and the one last thing I would point out about uh, Jane Hafen's argument is that uh, she points out the determinate views that insist upon one and only one true story are the types that lend themselves to racism and nationalism. Mm. Uh, and that leads to some of my critiques, if you will, of, uh, uh, of the Heartland model. Oh, wait, I, I, looking at my outline here, I realized I left out a couple of uh, okay. positive analysis. So let Please. me come back to those. Cool. Uh, I agree with uh, Neville uh, that translators are limited to the language they understand. And I find his argument about uh, Jonathan Edwards and, and Joseph Smith's relationship with Jonathan Edwards, probably he argues that Jonathan Edwards or Joseph Smith would have read uh, Jonathan Edwards. It's also possible that he heard a lot of sermons based upon Jonathan Edwards and heard this orally. Uh, but basically you see Joseph Smith adopting the language and terminology of Jonathan Edwards in his translation or dictation of the Book of Mormon. And uh, I, that's fascinating work. Uh, and I think it's a valuable contribution to the field of, of, of Mormon studies. Uh, and I would expand it beyond what, 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 what Neville does. And, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, and lastly, I wanna emphasize that I too value religion over science. But when I say that, I think I mean something very different than Meldrum articulated in his recent interview with you, okay? I do not mean that I reject science when the stories from religion are different from the, the stories that scientists come up with. Uh, what I mean, and again, I would say when, I see stories as a means to an end, okay? And, and I, that would put scripture within that, 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 that category of stories, okay? That, that scripture, uh, teachings, songs, uh, parables, all these things, they're a means for teaching values. And uh, we can get caught up in too much in the details of the story and focused on the truth of those details instead of on the truth of the values behind them. And what I see uh, Meldrum doing is getting too focused on those details and forgetting the values that are behind them. So when I say I value religion over science, I mean that I prioritize ethics and morality as more important than the advancement of science. As a scientist, I say this. 
Now, for me, what, what that means in practice is that I respect the religious freedom of Native Americans. They have an inherent right to review how scientists handle and study their ancestors' remains and the cultural materials they have left behind. Those materials belong to them, not to collectors, not to museums, not to anthropologists, unless we have clear and prior consent from those descendant communities. That's a religious belief of mine or an ethical belief of mine. And according to my beliefs, scientists should not have the right to study the remains of indigenous ancestors or initiate archeological excavations without the ethical review by and permission of descendant communities. And for me, valuing, science, valuing religion over science also means that I'm obligated to tell the truth as I best understand it. Even when that truth is uncomfortable for believers in religious narratives, such as those coming from the Book of Mormon. So let's go to some of those uncomfortable truths. Let's How about that? Okay. So my constructive critique, uh, I wanna clarify before I get into that, is that my intent is to share why I as an anthropologist find the Heartland model less than convincing. I'm not advocating that people believe the same as me. Uh, people have the right to articulate their own beliefs and perspectives and should weigh varieties and make their own choices. Each person should find their own path to reconciling science and religion. And I value other people's perspectives even when they differ from my own. Okay? And so I'm just sharing what I've learned based upon a career uh, in the field of anthropology and how it relates to what I see articulated in these uh, books advocating the Hartman model. The first thing, the critique that I wanna offer is actually of both the Mesoamerican and the Hartland geographies. When you actually sit down and read these books, it's interesting that both limited geographies engage in a considerable contortion of landscape and disagree about geographic references in the Book of Mormon, they read the Book of Mormon quite differently in terms of its geography, yet both camps argue that the Book of Mormon provides a clear and consistent geography, yet they can't agree on the basic details. And let me give some examples. In both models, West can mean South, and east can be north. Rivers can be seas, and narrow necks need not be narrow or long. Yet both camps claim that the Book of Mormon presents a consistent and reliable internal portrait of ancient America. If this is true, then why do they so vigorously disagree on the basic landscape configurations? Interesting. Now I'd like yeah, to yeah. look at uh, just, a, just a basic historical correction that needs to be made. Uh, Meldrum in, in his book on DNA implies uh, that the X lineage was unknown in 2002 at the, timing of, at the time of the filming of the video, DNA versus the Book of Mormon. And this is just a misstatement of fact, a misunderstanding apparently on his part. 
uh, or maybe he didn't present his ideas clearly. That's possible. Uh, that this is simply not historically accurate. Investigating the X lineage is what led me to uh, David Glenn Smith, one of the people interviewed in the DNA versus the Book of Mormon uh, video. And he introduced me uh, to the filmmakers, Joel Kramer and Jeremy Reyes. And so it was precisely because I was investigating the possibility that the X lineage might have been found in Mesoamerica by David Glenn Smith and his team. Uh, it turns out it wasn't. Uh, but uh, that was the impetus that got me involved was investigating the X lineage. I also discussed the X lineage at quite a bit of length uh, in, in my essay, uh, Lamanite Genesis, Genealogy, and Genetics, in this book, American Apocrypha, that I am glad to see right behind your, your head there. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and uh, this, this was published before the video came out, written uh, before even the interviews took place, at least portions of it. And or, there was ed some editing occurred after. Uh, and uh, it's also worth noting that Miroslava Durenko, who announced the detection of the haplogroup X in Siberia in the American Journal of Human Genetics in 2001, was cited in a February 2002 article in the Financial Times, stating that the X lineage was not evidence of a linkage between ancient Israelites and American Indians. And that news story that was run in the Financial Times in uh, 2002 was the first news story to cover DNA versus the Book of Mormon. And it, it came out during the Olympics in, in Salt Lake City in 2002. But interestingly, the only US paper to run that story was the Indian Country Today, which is a Native American owned newspaper. Uh, and uh, so that it is worth time for people to look that up and, and, and take a look at it. And just everybody, I'm wearing my Borders t-shirt and I used to be the periodicals director at the uh, at location. And I remember Indian country, that was one of the papers we uh, distributed. Just throw, throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, and Financial Times too? Um, oh, I'm sure we carried Financial Times. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a major European newspaper. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, on a related note, in a header on page 75 of his DNA book, Meldrum claims that the X lineage is not found in Asia. And I don't know if this was an editorial mistake, uh, but it's simply not true. It's simply not true, even if you read, continue to read the text, because on the very next page, Meldrum quotes a peer-reviewed article describing the presence of the X lineage in Al Altaian uh, populations of southwestern Siberia, as demonstrated by Durenko, uh, that I just mentioned in that, that, that just talked about this in the Financial Times. And so, his own text disagrees with his headline, with his header. And, you know, it's possible that he did a little research after he had the original headings and forgot to go back and change it. So I give him the benefit of the doubt, but it's very misleading to his readers to have a false statement in a header and then have a more accurate statement below it. Uh, and, and that really is, is, is a shame that it made it into that book. Uh, and, it, it's also very important to point out that the X lineage is actually quite widespread. It's found in North and Western Asia, in the Middle East, Europe, and Africa. And in fact, in your recent interview with Meldrum, he showed a, a map of the distribution of the X lineage that was much more accurate than his book. 
Okay, so it also demonstrated that his book's claim was inaccurate. Uh, so his views appear to have evolved uh, or changed over time, or at least he is recognized he made a mistake and, and trying to correct it now. And to, kudos to him for that. Now, the X lineage is much older than Meldrum claims. The separation between the sub-lineages found in America and those in the Middle East occurred more than 20,000 years ago. Now, it's helpful for me to step back and look at the big picture here uh, for people that might not be familiar with the debate on DNA versus the Book of Mormon. So what, uh, what scientists found, uh, geneticists looking at Native American uh, origins uh, in uh, the early research, the earliest research that was done on genetic ancestry, uh, in, particularly in, on maternal lineages known as mitochondrial DNA, uh, that the first lineages identified uh, were, were present in Native American populations. These are A, B, C, and D. These are also uh, present in Northern uh, in Eastern Asian populations. Uh, these same lineages. Uh, and th those lineages are key to understanding that, that intimate relationship between Asian populations and, and Native American populations. Uh, later, the X lineage was identified, and you can kind of follow the timeline by the alphabet because they were using the alphabet to identify these lineages. Uh, and the X lineage was found in a more widespread than A through D. Okay, so it wasn't just found in Northeast Asia and North Asia, East Asia, Central Asia too. Uh, and uh, the, the Americas, A, B, C, and D were limited to that range uh, where X was found more widespread, uh, as I said, in uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Western Asia as well. Uh, and so the discovery of the, the excellent is did generate some excitement. In fact, it was announced in Salt Lake City uh, at a, a genetics or a physical anthropology conference there. Uh, and so it generated some excitement in Mormon communities thinking maybe there was a potential uh, connection to Middle Eastern populations. Uh, and that's a question I evaluated before I published my article on Lamanite Genesis, Genealogy, and Genetics. And what I found uh, is that uh, the timing is wrong. You know, that although there is a kinship, a, it's a very distant kinship uh, between uh, some Western Asian, European, and African populations and uh, Native Americans, uh, and that the the genetics shows that the ancestors that carried that, that, that lineage split from each other uh, about 20,000 years ago or more in some cases. So it's well, well outside of the time frame of the Book of Mormon. I do find that uh, interesting that, uh, you know, I noticed, you know, when Rod gave his presentation, we're going to talk about it, is that that's why yeah. the young earth creationist model is employed because that then helps try to explain the dates. So um, I was surprised that Rod really went, uh, this is really the first time he's ever really explicitly tied 
his creationist model with with um, the uh, with the heartland model, but it seemed to be the underlying thing that was there. But it's the first time it was kind of really articulated. But that's why the time frames are important uh, in his worldview. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that he articulated that. But it I have to say that it 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 undermines his credibility in my eyes, uh, and in I think the eyes of a lot of uh, researchers. And you know, in you know, it, it would be a whole nother uh, interview to go into the creation evolution debate. Maybe someday we can do that. I spent my career uh, teaching evolution, as the most frequently taught class I've taught is human origins and bioanthropology, which uh, looks at uh, human origins from a, an anthropological perspective. But that would be a topic for another mm -hmm. another time. Okay, I <laughs> yep. uh, I will say at this point that Meldum's critiques of the dating myth methodologies derived from creationist literature are unfounded and unconvincing. Uh, and an important point to point out is that anthropologists typically use multiple methods of dating that collectively provide compelling evidence that ancestors of American Indians have been in the Americas since time immemorial, as the elders would put it, or to put it in archeological terms, at least 10,000 years or more before the events described in the Book of Mormon. And the more is appearing more and more likely in part because of the genetic research uh, and recent uh, reconsiderations of some of the older evidence uh, that, uh, that uh, we, we found in the Americas. Uh, anthropologists, I mean, native people have been saying for a long time, we've been here since time immemorial and anthropologists you know, used to be basically like those young earth creationists and saw everything occurring within the last few thousand years. Uh, and then over time, anthropologists have come around uh, as the evidence accumulated and accumulated that it had to be older and older and older and older and older. And that's uh, occurred, been, uh, that has been rapidly pushed forward by the genetic evidence because the genetic evidence was pushing back the dating of, of, of the separation between Native Americans and Asians, uh, tens of thousands of years before archeologists were willing to admit people were here in the Americas. Uh, and part of it was that kind of, that skepticism in, in, in anthropological circles of, uh, of new evidence. Uh, and that skepticism is good you, you to, to have something well-established, you can't just have one dating method. You gotta have multiple dating methods. Uh, and so now many of these uh, older sites that have been proposed on somewhat sketchier uh, evidence, that is only one or two dating samples, for example, they're now going back and testing them with, with multiple methods uh, and pushing that dating further and further back. So just real quick, you know, often the main creationist critique of the dating method is the carbon-14 method. Maybe right. just briefly talk about those other multiple means of dating in addition to carbon-14, just so the audience gets a better understanding that carbon-14 is not the only means that they use for dating. Yeah, I mean, there, there are other chemical ones such as potassium argon dating or uh, thermoluminescence. Uh, and, and these are, you know, looking at chemical compositions and how they change over time. I, but I think the most important one is the most basic one. And this is the one that is thoroughly problematic in the Heartland model. And this is what's called stratigraphy. Uh, stratigraphy 
is when you encounter uh, artifacts in the ground, uh, artifacts that are closer to the top uh, are artifacts in almost all cases, there are some exceptions, but in almost all cases, the artifacts closer to the, to the surface are those that were laid down most recently. And the further you, you dig down into at least an undisturbed site, uh, that uh, the items will get older the further you get down. And this is the, the very basics of dating in archeology. span And it's one entirely massacred by Meldrum's book, okay? Uh, and it, it, it's the most fundamental dating method to begin with. And I'll get into a little bit of detail what, 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 where, he, where he misses the point there, okay? I, there are a few exceptions to that. Let's say, you know, this happened on archeological sites where I have, you're digging down and, and you, you actually find a rodent has dug down into an area and you can recognize that by the discoloration in the soil and a rodent say penetrating into a lower area might carry something down from above to a lower site, lower level. And this is why it's really important that when you do archeology, span you're very careful and you document everything that you're doing uh, so that you can get a, a good uh, stratigraphic layering. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'll get into that in, in a little more detail when I talk about some, yeah. one of my later criticisms. So the next one I wanna articulate is that Rod Meldrum's claim that the X lineage is Caucasian or white, those are his terms, is both wrong and racist. And I don't use that word lightly, okay? Uh, and I want to explain and articulate a little why this argument is so important. The ex-lineage, as I've already noted, is found in North Africa, Asia, America, and Europe. It's inaccurate to associate it with whiteness. The genetic code within the ex-lineage does not code for skin color or any other feature typically associated with race. People carrying the X lineage come in all colors, all shapes and sizes, and represent all so-called races. It is not a Caucasian lineage. It is not a white lineage. And so that is uh, a fundamental flaw that undermines the entire argument that uh, Meldrum articulates in this book. It's a basic misunderstanding uh, of genetics. And I would add that it is generally inaccurate to use racial labels for DNA lineages that cut across racial groups. Now, I should point out that Mel Rod Meldrum is not the only one to do this. I've seen it in his cousin, Jeff Meldrum's writings. Uh, it even sleeps into the church's essay in Hugo Prego's writings at times too, because it's kind of a shorthand way to say Asian DNA or Native American DNA that if we use those terms, it's actually inaccurate, okay? Uh, and so even scientists are guilty of this at times, uh, but Meldrum takes it to a, a different level, okay? And what I wanna do is explain a little bit why. DNA identifies us by lineage, 
not by race. And I want to have a couple of stories to illustrate this. The first is an example from my bioanthropology classes and human origins classes. For over 20 years, my students have been extracting their own mitochondrial DNA. And then uh, we, uh, we extract it, we amplify it, and then we send it to a lab for sequencing. And then we take those sequences and we conduct comparisons and contrasts with each other uh, within the class. And they also, I throw in mine so they can, they can make comparisons with me as well. And then the students, we use some computational models, some uh, computer algorithms uh, to help identify uh, the, the frequency of relationships, how closely related they are, kind of like using a calculator to do the math. Uh, and I, we have them run some comparisons with each other. Before they do that, I have them develop some hypotheses about who do you think is your closest relative in this class? Who do you think is your most distant? Okay, and the default thing that students will do is that they will use racial characteristics to make those those assumptions just because that's the society we've grown up in. We've grown to think racially, but DNA actually is one of the best refutations of racial thinking when we actually look at it in detail. Uh, and so these students, when they actually run the comparisons and what these comparisons are telling them is who is your closest maternal relative uh, in the class. And so mitochondrial DNA traces your mother's, 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 mother's ancestor. And so I, it isn't necessarily all your relatives, okay? So that's an important factor to recognize. But who is your closest maternal relative in the class? And in every single class for more than 20 years, some of my students, have consistently found that their closest maternal relatives belong to a different race than they do. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Uh, and every time it's because these lineages do not follow racial categories. And in fact, my closest maternal relatives in the, over these many, many years of doing these experiments are often students with an Asian background. Hmm. And that's because my mitochondrial lineage is you is an ancient one that just like X is quite widespread across Eurasia. Uh, and so when we actually look at the DNA, it's telling a different story than our racial categories, which are actually a modern invention used to justify slavery uh, and economic disparities. Uh, it, it's not a biological reality. And that's a, you know, a basic teaching that we have in our introductory anthropology classes. Uh, and I should say that my bioanthropology classes are available online through Edmonds College. Uh, and uh, you, they fill up really quickly. So if you want to enroll, uh, you need to do so pretty quick. But my have classes for winter quarter that are open now and we'll have some later in, in spring if you wanna get into this in more detail. But one of the important things we teach is that race is a social construct, not supported by a close look at human biology. Our physical features such as our skin color, our facial structure, our hair texture that are typically associated with, with race are inherited independently of each other 
and cut across so-called races, just like DNA lineages. That's why, for example, you can have Australian Aborigines with black skin and blonde hair. That's why some of the most famous fossils in England, uh, when they we did the DNA, found out they had black skin. Cheddar Man uh, mm -hmm. from England yeah. uh, has dark skin. That's right. Okay, and so the uh, our racial concepts are are biased. They're they're based on our politics our ways of excluding and discriminating against each other uh, in ways that are not supported by a close look at biology. Yet that we take superficial appearances and then dump people into categories based upon those. Well, people's actual biology is much more complex than that. And this is just a fundamental, fundamental flaw in Meldrum's thinking. Hmm. Continue. So differences in skin color uh, that are the, the superficial ones that we focus on the most in the United States, because race isn't even understood in all cultures. Okay, It's, it's kind of an American concept that's spread uh, in, in some cultures. All cultures have amount of prejudice and ethnocentrism where they think of themselves as, as to some degree better than others, but it isn't always framed in biological terms. That's, you know, again, a, a largely an American invention. Uh, and it's focused on skin color because what happened in the immigration to America, the United States, is that you had kind of three major populations that had interacted distantly in the past, but had been largely separated from each other. Uh, and that was people from uh, places like Africa, Europe, and the Americas. And so we had some stark differences that we could easily see between these groups. And they tended to be concentrated in, around skin color, okay? And so dialogue in the Americas began to focus on skin color because that became a way to figure out who was a slave or who uh, was needed, who might have access to particular resources, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, what, when we actually look at the biology of skin color, uh, we find that it has nothing to do uh, with religion or morality. And this is a strong refutation of the arguments in the Book of Mormon. And I, I should note, I, I wrote an article about this called Sin, Skin, and Seed, and I presented it at the John Whitmer Historical Association in 2004, their, their, their meeting right before the World Conference of the Community of Christ. Uh, and this article articulates the reasons that the science in the Book of Mormon is wrong, the science of skin color in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and it, basically, the Book of Mormon uh, idea that a dark skin is a curse from God for wickedness uh, has no biological founding. Uh, because skin color evolves in response to the environment and doesn't have anything to do with morality. Darker skin protects against skin cancer and destruction of folic acid, which is important in preventing birth defects like spina bifida. And so uh, having a darker skin, uh, particularly in areas where there's a lot of sun, will provide protection uh, for people living in those environments. Now, lighter skin provides protection against cold injury 
and aids in the processing of vitamin D from sunlight and thus protects against rickets. And so what we have is that human populations in more temperate areas with less sun uh, need to have uh, more vitamin D uh, process to avoid rickets. Uh, and so there's a selection for, a natural selection for uh, lighter skin in those temperate climates. And uh, this is the reason that we see lighter skin more towards uh, the poles, and we see uh, darker skin in more tropical regions. Uh, and uh, this happens regardless of how closely related people are. So you see the, that same trend in the Americas. Uh, you see that same trend in Africa and Europe. You see that same trend in Australia uh, and Southeast Asia. And so uh, even though Australians and Africans may be very distant from each other, or Australians and Native Americans are distant from each other, that same, those same processes are selecting for skin color in those different environments. And I, I think at, at this point, it, it, it's worth taking a moment for an aside to respond to one of Meldrum's claims in your last interview with him, uh, in which he said that anthropologists are racist uh, because we say that our ancestors came from Africa. He claimed that because apes are black, that somehow we are disparaging African people by associating them with apes. Well, that's not the case, and I want to explain why. Chimpanzees, our closest living relative that share more than 98% of our DNA, they, they are an ape, okay? They actually have white pink skin under a dark fur coat. Uh, and so the assumption, the assumption behind Meldrum's comment that apes have, have dark skin is actually incorrect. Just real quick, I heard bonobos are actually related closer to us. Are bonobos are actually... It, it, it's pretty close to the same. It's in the same ballpark. There okay. are some behavioral ways that, that bonobos appear more like us as well. Okay. And, you know, bonobos and chim bonobos are a chimpanzee, though. So when okay. I say chimpanzees, I'm including it's bonobos. within that group. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're, they're different. They're different species. So the common chimpanzee and, and the, the pygmy or bonobo chimpanzee. Okay. And we're very close to both. And, and uh, probably the bonobo is a little more like our common ancestor than the common chimp, I think. Okay. But uh, it, that's, that's hard to determine with confidence. Okay. Uh, and, the reason that anthropologists point to Africa for the origins of humanity is that that's where our closest relatives are found. And that's not just among uh, monkeys and, and, and living apes, okay, but also in the fossil record. So hundreds of fossils of uh, species we identify as Australopithecines, Paranthropus, and Artipithecus, all of which display characteristics, kind of a mosaic of characteristics that include human and chimpanzee-like characteristics have been found in Africa and nowhere else. So humans separated from a common ancestor with chimpanzees around five to seven million years ago. And then the fossil record shows over millions of years, uh, our ancestors were only in Africa. It's only about 2 million years ago that our ancestors begin to be found outside of, of Africa uh, with uh, Homo erectus, uh, that, that species. And so that's the reason we identify Africa is because that's where, the, that's where our ancestors are. It has nothing to do with uh, racial prejudice, okay? 
Uh, and in terms of DNA, we've confirmed what we see from the archaeological record because in, in genetics, we find that the oldest lineages, that is the, the lineages that are ancestral to the ones that are found elsewhere in the world, all come from Africa. Uh, and that the most human genetic diversity in the world is found in Africa. So Africans as a population are more genetically diverse than the entire rest of the world. Uh, and that's what you would expect if our ancestors came from Africa. And just as a, to wrap this up, I wanna say that Africans are not more ape-like than the rest of humanity. They're just as human as anybody else. And in terms of skin color, it's ironically white people who are more ape-like. Yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> now, uh, so just folks, you know, this is really, it's really important that we have these kind of conversations because, you know, um, there was racism in the 19th century, basically everybody was racist. And one of the things that I don't like about creation, some of the tactics the creationists use is they tend to use these racial things as to uh, sully Darwin and his folk the early on, because some of the early evolutionists were, were did have racist views and actually uh, used things like social Darwinism and uh, thought that the races evolved from different uh, species and stuff like that. And so, and they're just saying, but the problem is that Christian creationists also had racist ideas at this very same time. So nobody is exempt from uh, this uh, dark period of history. Yeah, no, I would agree. You know, I was shocked by the racism in, in Darwin's origin of the species when I read it. So, you know, it's there. And, you know, it's not what anthropologists believe today, uh, but it is present in those early uh, scientists, scientific writers. And, and as you said, also among Christians and, and it, you know, the, it, this, it, it's underlying a lot of uh, Meldrum's argument in, in the association of the three sons of Manoah with races. Uh, and, and that idea I deconstruct in that Sin, Skin, and Seed article as well. And I, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but I just refer people that are interested in it to that. Next, I want to address Meldrum's claim that an ancient white race built the mounds uh, that are found in uh, the Mississippi Valley, in Ohio, uh, in New York, uh, and in the American Southeast. That idea is both racist and unsupported by the archeological and historical records. Uh, and it's really underlying the, what we called in, anth in anthropology, we call the mound builder myth. And we use that, that term myth to, in both the, the sense that it is false and in the sense that it, it forms a nationalist identity. It becomes a, a, a an primordial truth uh, for a nationalist identity in the United States. And it's an idea that, that gained popularity in the aftermath of the American Revolution. Okay, so it is closely tied with American nationalism. And the idea is that ancestors of American Indians were not intellectually capable of building sophisticated mounds and earthworks. That's the racist idea underpinning this. Uh, despite conflicting evidence at the time it was developed. It developed though, because it helped ease the conscience of Euro-American settler colonialists who were engaged in and benefiting from genocide. 
they were themselves wiping out the native populations and they needed a way to ease their own consciousness, consciousness, consciousness over what was clearly wrong and was clearly against basic Christian teachings of the day. Uh, and I think it's interesting to read the Book of Mormon within, within that context. I, I think that Joseph Smith and many of his contemporaries were deeply troubled by the, the destruction of native populations, yet they were benefiting from it. And so they're trying to find a way to rationalize it, trying to justify it. And this mound builder myth came up at a very convenient time to do that. Uh, and, you know, people's own psychological anxiety uh, and their desire to protect uh, what they had taken in war, uh, those things came together to, to build this crescendo of popularity uh, around a, a myth that is simply untrue, uh, that there was once an ancient white race of uh, mound builders in the Americas that were destroyed by the ancestors of the American Indians. This idea would get incorporated into the Book of Mormon and is why Meldrum is defending it. Well, from an archeological perspective, there's actually no dramatic widespread wars of destruction or major economic revolutions during the woodland period, which is 1000 BC to AD 1500. You'll see this in basic introductory textbooks uh, to ancient North America like that of Brian Fagan. There's just not uh, the type of destruction that's described in the Book of Mormon did not occur in this North American region that's proposed as the Heartland model. Uh, yet Meldrum keeps trying to imply that that happened, but there's no archeological evidence for it. That type of widespread destruction would leave uh, very clear uh, distinctions in the biological record and the archeological and, and linguistic record as well. Just real quick, you know, one of the arguments the Heartlanders make is that the um, Hopewell um, culture that they attach to the Nephite civilization roughly corresponds with um, the Book of Mormon uh, time frame, and that they say that around 400 AD, the Hopewells disappear. Is that accurate? It's false. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. Okay. So that's not true. Not at all. Not okay. at all true. Uh, and so it, it, it's also important to recognize, though, that this myth uh, of a mound builder race is important for settler colonial anxiety. And, and that's where in the Book of Mormon, the right to land is contingent upon righteousness. This, this idea is an anachronistic projection of settler colonial logic into an ancient past. And again, I really want to recommend Elise Boxer's article in this book, Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, that explains the Book of Mormon as a settler colonial text. That this idea developed to, to give justification uh, for uh, people from Europe to take land away from uh, people that it obviously belonged to okay, and ethically belonged to. Uh, and, uh, and, and by basic Christian ethics and morality, it's hard to justify. And so this is a, an elaborate effort to try to justify that. Uh, one of the reasons that this myth of an ancient race, white race 
is clearly wrong is that European explorers and colonists actually recorded observations of Native Americans building and visiting mounds. So they saw it. Thomas Jefferson <laughs> observed it in his childhood, one of the, the, the mounds that he excavated. He saw the people coming to visit it. Uh, and he had no doubt that it was Native Americans who built it because he'd seen them working on it. He'd seen them visiting it. And, uh, you know, this, these observations kind of get lost in the narrative. Well, just real quick. Uh, so you're saying there are mounds that would date to the time of Thomas Jefferson? Yes. That, okay. And we, we date they them. Were continue, in that case, they were continuing to be visited. And so the mounds, a lot of them accumulated over time. So there'd be burials placed on over time. And so they get bigger and bigger over time. And so this process of coming back and visiting, you might only put it, you know, some new bones in there, okay, and, and new burials. And, and so it might be a, a small change to the, the mound, but this was occurring after, at the, at the very time that this, this mythology was arising, even after the American Revolution, natives were still building these mounds. Okay. So, so in, in the mounds, we will find that at the top layer would be dated to contemporary to that period of time of Thomas Jefferson. And as we go further down, how far down, I mean, I mean, well, that, that depends, that depends on the mounds because not all, yeah. so, so not all mounds are, right. uh, were still being right. used. Got it. Yeah. There were, there were many, that that were no longer being used. They Got might it. have just been being visited, though. Uh, Got it. And and in other cases, they were being visited, and additional uh, burials were placed in them. So depends on the specific setting there. And the important thing is that the tradition of coming back and putting the bodies there was would be a continuous link to the past. Right. Exactly. Uh, and uh, that you know basically continued into Joseph Smith's lifetime. Hmm. The woodland societies, uh, in, in the terms that are often used, not, not just by Meldrum, but also by many archaeologists, uh, are the Adena and Hopewell. So Adena would be the early woodland, Hopewell the middle woodland. Uh, these societies did not disappear, but they evolved into Mississippian and other mound building cultures. And this is where, you know, what... What changed at 400 AD was the frequency with which certain types of mounds were being built, okay? Uh, and that, it, it wasn't a widespread destruction, okay? It was a cultural, cultural evolution occurring around that time, but it wasn't the type of destruction that you see in the Book of Mormon. It was not Hopewell people being wiped out. It was not Adena people being wiped out, okay? And so it, it, Meldrum and, and his colleagues associate the Adena with the Jaredites and Hopewell with the Nephites. Uh, and uh, that can't be the case because the Adena become the Hopewell. The descendants of the Adena are the Hopewell. And so archaeologically, what they're saying is that Nephites are descendants of Jaredites. And that's not what I read in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and so they, they just really misrepresent the archaeological record here. Uh, and the Im most important thing to point out, though, is that uh, the descendants of mound building populations are still alive today. And they're well known to anthropologists. Uh, and, you know, highly recommend this book. 
Native Americans, Archaeologists in the Mounds by Barbara Alice Mann, a Seneca descendant, uh, who explains that the descendants of the mound builders are the Cherokee, the Shawnee, the Iroquois, the Lenape, and the Ho-Chunk and others. These are the descendants of mound builders. They still claim uh, to be the descendants of the mound builders, still have oral traditions related to uh, the mound building, still visit uh, the mounds that are important to them. Uh, this tradition is not dead. It's not a dead tradition. It's a living Native American tradition. Uh, and uh, it's only in white nationalist fantasies that these cultures disappeared. Uh, and not in the archaeological record. Okay. Um, the, of course, I think a more a traditional or orthodox heartlander would say that, well, that's what we're saying, that these people are the descendants of the Lamanites. Um, the, the, I've heard the argument made that once the time period of after Christ happened, that there was a lot of, like, there was no longer, uh, you know, we have references, there were no, no ites and stuff like that. And that, that the idea of Lamanite and Nephite kind of lost their distinctiveness. And so that then they had so intermingled with each other, the argument would go then, well, of course, you're going to find that intermingling and that the idea of Lamanite Nephite was more of an idea than a racial thing at the, at the final battle uh, at Hill Cumorah. Is that, would that be an argument that you would, would hold any water with you? I, you know, well, I like certain aspects of that. I mean, it is, you know, the great piece in the Book of Mormon. I use the, the Iroquois term for that event because this event is in Iroquois oral tradition. It's worth pointing out. And I, Interesting. I discuss that quite a bit in, in this book, Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, in my essay here, about what, what do we learn about the great peace uh, in Iroquois tradition. Uh, and uh, so there is this idea of the coming together of different peoples that occurs in both traditions. In the Book of Mormon, it's framed as there were no more, no manner of ites among us, okay? Uh, and, uh, and so there, there is this melding of people. Now, if you follow the Book of Mormon narrative further along, uh, you find that they do separate again into Nephites and Lamanites. And there are insinuations, not as explicit in, as they are in, in the early Book of Mormon of, of the racial aspects, but they're still there, uh, certainly references to seed and stuff. So that that idea starts to fall apart when you when you read the rest of the Book of Mormon. But but I like it. I like that way of looking at it. And I, I just you know it, I would just recommend we look at it also within the context of Iroquois stories of the Great Peace, mm. uh, and those very well may have inspired uh, Joseph Smith's recounting. I. Uh, so now to come back to my critiques of the Heartland model, uh, one of the most fundamental problems that really created uh, I shouldn't the, okay the the Mesoamerican model uh, emerged in popularity in as I said you know it, it had had some fifties sixties and seventies articulations that that but fluoresced mostly in, in the 80s. And there was something really critical that happened, excuse me, in the 70s. Uh, and that is that uh, LDS archeologists, as well as some prominent non-Mormon archeologists such as Michael Coe, uh, began publishing in uh, articles on archeology span in the Book of Mormon in a new journal called Dialogue. 
Uh, and in dialogue, they pointed out all these archeological problems with uh, the Book of Mormon. Uh, and so the, the, the pushing of the Mesoamerican model was in part a response to these archeological problems. And I think it would benefit Meldrum and, and Neville to go back to those dialogue articles and actually read what the archeologists are saying because they repeat many of the same problems. And the, the fundamental problem is this, that the European flora, fauna, and technology mentioned in the Book of Mormon is not found in ancient America. It's not found in Mesoamerica, and it's not found in North America. And let me be very specific about this. There are no grains of Eurasian origin, such as wheat, barley, oats, flax, etc., that are found in the Americas during the time frame proposed in the Book of Mormon despite the mention, specific mention uh, of some of those uh, in the Book of Mormon itself, plus the claim that Jaredites and Nephites brought their seeds with them uh, when they migrated, okay? Uh, instead of those uh, plants of European origins, Adena and Hopewell peoples cultivated indigenous species of sumpweed, a sunflower, of gourds, squashes, goosefoot, knotweed, maygrass, little barley, tobacco, nuts like acorns, fruits, and berries. And notice I did mention a barley there, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. There is an indigenous form of barley that's found in the Americas, but it could not have come from Asia with the Jaredites or Lehites because it developed from a wild variety that was already present here in the Americas. Hmm. Uh, and so they, they play up that, that barley similarity, but that's just the name that we've applied to it. It is related to the barley uh, of the old world, but it's a native variety that was domesticated locally here, uh, not brought over from uh, the ancient Near East. Now, corn is the only domesticated crop mentioned in the Book of Mormon to have originated in America. However, only sporadic occurrences of maize or corn appear in the middle woodland period, not at all in the early woodland period, okay? Uh, and it was not until the rise of Mississippian culture centuries after the events of the Book of Mormon that corn and beans would become widespread in Meldrum's proposed geography. So his playing up of corn really kind of misrepresents the archeological record. It's only sporadically found and not widely used at that time. And so again, inconsistent with the Book of Mormon narrative. It's also important to point out that indigenous cultivation of the Edina and Hopewell and, and other and Mississippian native cultures uh, was female-based and used digging sticks and native plants rather than plows, livestock, and domesticated plants from Europe. That type of uh, agriculture uh, is not found in ancient America. And in fact, no domesticated livestock of Eurasian origin, that would include things like horse, cattle, oxen, sheep, goats, chickens, etc., are found in the Americas during the time frame proposed in the Book of Mormon. Again, despite the fact that the Book of Mormon claims that the Jaredites and Nephites brought these with them. And they also say they found some here. Uh, the Adena and Hopewell peoples, instead of using European animals, uh, ate migratory waterfowl, deer, raccoon, turkey, shellfish, and even dogs. Uh, no 
European technology, such as chariots, steel, plows, linen, silk, and glass, is found in Adena or Hopewell cultures. Uh, and so again, we find that the technology of the Book of Mormon uh, is wrong for ancient America. And I'm going to come back to some important points from this, but I want to point out another really important critique first. And that is this ornate picture book. Unfortunately, features frauds, fakes, and images of features and mounds from outside of the Book of Mormon period, despite the fact that one of their critiques of the, the Mesoamerican model is the tendency of Mesoamericanists to use uh, pictures of classic Maya architecture. Well, they do the same with Mississippian. Okay. Uh, so let me mention a few specifics here. Uh, the Newark Holy Stones, the Bat Creek Stone, and the elephant pipes that they mention are all well-known frauds, long ago discredited by professional archaeologists. The Newark Holy Stones that they mentioned that had supposedly some uh, Hebrew inscriptions on them uh, are based upon anachronistic Hebrew scripts uh, taken from the wrong time. And in fact, the first one, uh, when that was pointed out, they came back with one that was a little closer. But in both cases, uh, they found another one you know, that, that, that was more, more what you might expect. Now, is the Newark uh, Holy Stone the one that's in Ohio, in the museum in Ohio? Is that the, I think I think so. It has the carving of Moses or an image of Moses or something on it or Noah. Is that uh, it, it, it's? I, I there's the Ohio Decalogue stone. I think I'm, I'm mixing it up with that one. Okay. Well, this is these are this is called Decalogue stone as well. So okay, it, got it. I think it might be at the same one, but okay. it's got basic anachronistic uh, Hebrew scripts. And you know, here's the challenge that 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 Meldrum and his, his, his team have is that any reader with, with access to the internet, all they got to do is Google this and Wikipedia is going to give you a more accurate description than Meldrum. And so, you know, that's, that's a challenge in today's world, right? Uh, perpetuating these frauds. The, the Bat Creek stone that he also uses has inscriptions that are copied from an 1870 Masonic publication and includes the same errors made by that author. It was supposedly found with brass, bracelet, brass bracelets that have been identified as of late eight, or 18th or early 19th century European manufacture. So I just have a quick question about the Back Creek Stone. I have read that there are some non-LDS um, individuals who do think there might be something to it, including, I think a lot of people would probably be, um, mention Scott Walter, who's a geologist out of um, Minnesota, thinks that it might be authentic. Do you have anything to say to that? Well, it's important to, that none of these were LDS fabrications. Okay, Right, that's true. So the, these, are, these are frauds that, that feed into this larger belief in an ancient white race uh, and connections to the ancient Near East. So these ideas are not unique to Mormons. Uh, and uh, that they... They didn't come from Mormons. I mean, you had there are there are some examples associated uh, with with Mormonism. Uh, the uh, I'm blanking on the name. The so about the Michigan relics or that's... well, those are those have some connections to Mormons because the church bought bought them, them right? 
but the I was thinking of the one that that they brought to the kin uh, the Kinderhook the, plates. Kinderhook plates, yeah, the Kinderhook right. plates that were brought to Joseph Smith. So there there is a fraud that has a connection to the church, but uh, it was intended kind of to, to dupe Mormons and, yeah. and to display Joseph Smith himself as a fraud. Uh, but so these are not unique to, to Mormons and the, there uh, are non-Mormons who advocate them. In fact, that probably as many or more non-Mormons as Mormons. Uh, but it's important to point out in a Mormon context that using these known frauds is the equivalent of a Mormon historian writing a book that prominently features well-known Mark Hoffman forgeries like the Salamander Letter and the Joseph Smith III Blessing. And if you came to the Mormon History Association and tried to present a paper like that first, it probably would be rejected unless you managed to sneak it in there, right? Uh, and are you surprised that it would be rejected by peer review uh, because it's based upon Hoffman's forgeries? People that are in the know know immediately that that's a fraud. Uh, and that's essentially what Meldrum is trying to push off on his audience. And it, it's disrespectful to his audience, for one. Uh, and it, it sets himself and his advocates up uh, for disappointment. Uh, when their readers just Google the Newark Holy Stones or uh, when their readers take an archaeology class. Uh, so I think it's really counterproductive for uh, Meldrum to use these frauds and forgeries. And the sad thing is, though, if he wants to make any claims, he's almost dependent on them because there are no, no accurate Nothing coming from the accurate historical and archaeological record. I'll point out another example too. The elephant mound that he makes a big deal out of is just a bare effigy eroded by drifting sand and well, well recognized as such by, uh, by anthropologists. Where, and is, this, it, where it, is this mound located at offhand? Uh, I think it's another one in Ohio, if I okay. remember right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the... It, it's important to note that, you know, the elephants that appear in the Book of Mormon were part of a much larger narrative among uh, this mound builder myth because Macedon bones were being found. Uh, and uh, so the mound builder myth includes this idea that, that this ancient white race had domesticated elephants. And so that makes its way into the Book of Mormon, especially through the Jaredite narrative. Uh, but that's a well-known narrative that pre-existed the Book of Mormon and and, you know, and then again, it's being advocated by these non-Mormons because it exists independent of the Book of Mormon. And another kind of deceptive aspect of the Heartland model is that it relies upon outdated and disreputable sources. And I want to name these, E.G. Squire, Arlington Mallory, and William Connor right, for their claims of European technologies like steel, and for animals like elephants and horses in Adena and Hopewell cultures. These sources do not employ modern or even stratigraphic dating methods. So now is where I want to come back to that stratigraphic aspect. So because mounds were still being built, earthworks were still being built well into the historic period, Europe, European technology uh, 
was being incorporated by indigenous cultures for 200 years before the rise of this mound builder myth. Okay, so you do see in uh, some cases, European items of European manufacture found in uh, Native American uh, features, like even mounds. And this is particularly true and well-documented in the Ganargua Valley, uh, where Joseph Smith used to go fishing uh, and uh, used to uh, do some of his treasure hunting. Uh, there was a mixture of European artifacts. In fact, there was a large 17th century battle at Canandigan, which is a, a Seneca village uh, less than a dozen miles from Palmyra and uh, Hill Camorra, uh, where uh, a significant amount of evidence of European warfare uh, and native artifacts are all mixed together. Uh, and so if you don't employ basic dating methods like stratigraphy, it's easy to confuse these items of European manufacture uh, with native materials. And I think that's what Joseph Smith must have done uh, himself, is that he probably encountered in his treasure hunting and in stories he heard from others uh, he, that these European items were being found with native items. Uh, and so that is part of fostering this, this myth of an ancient white race uh, that comes out of basically not understanding the basic stratigraphy of an archeological site. And when stratigraphy and other dating methods are applied, none of these items come from an ancient context. And I'll point out also that the monk's mound from Cahokia, which is in East St. Louis, featured on pages 114 to 117 uh, of uh, the photographic book of Meldrums, uh, was built centuries after the events of the Book of Mormon. I, I will give him credit that in his small print, he acknowledges this fact, but I point it out because he and, and Neville are so critical of the Mesoamerican model for using classic Maya features, but they're doing the same thing they're criticizing the Mesoamericans of doing. And so I, I think that that's a little uh, deceptive. Now, I want to explore in my next critique, something I really like about uh, Neville's work is that his connections to Jonathan Edwards. And I want to say that the argument is this, that Jonathan Edwards' neophytes bear a striking resemblance to Joseph Smith's Nephites. Now, wait a minute. What do I mean by neophytes? Yes. Okay. Have you heard that term, neophyte? Oh, I've heard the term. Yeah, but uh, yeah, let's... yeah. So it's it's a term used by these missionaries of that time period yeah. and still used today uh, for like a new convert to a religion. Like native converts to Christianity were often called neophytes. So there's an interesting play on words here, uh, and uh, what. I want to argue is that the neophytes and Nephites are very similar. If Neville takes a closer look at Jonathan Edwards' missionary work, he's going to find that Christian missionaries of the 18th and 19th century sought to civilize American Indians as well as Christianize them. 
And that civilization mean, meant the adoption of a male-based plow agriculture with domestic livestock, blacksmiths, wagons, wheat, barley, oats, flax, etc. This was meant to replace an indigenous agriculture that managed largely by women using digging sticks and focused on corn, beans, squash, sunflowers, and other plants. That an integral part of Christian missionary work was the incorporation of European plants, animals, and technology. And so what we've got is an anachronistic element of 18th and 19th century Christian missionary work projected back into the ancient past. And so Joseph Smith didn't just adopt Jonathan Edwards' language, he also adopted his cultural assumptions and prejudices. Neither of them could imagine indigenous civilization without European plants, animals, and technology. And Neville, so in this sense, I would say that Neville and Meldrum got the North American setting of the Book of Mormon right. They just have it in the wrong time. Mm. Hmm. So I think the, the best parallel for Nephites are 18th and 19th century neophytes. And I, I want to give some very specific examples. I, Jonathan Edwards, uh, in his missionary work at, at Stockbridge, you know, creates a praying town. There are a number of other uh, preachers, some native, some non-native, uh, that, that were involved in similar work. Samson Oakham, Samuel Kirkland, Ethan Smith, author of View of the Hebrews, Joseph Johnson, David Brown, William Apis. These are examples of uh, neophyte communities that resemble Nephites of the Book of Mormon. And not only does the missionary program of these neophytes resemble that of the Book of Mormon, but they also use similar sermon styles, including parallel structures like chiasmus and the laying down of heads. And for those who haven't heard of that, that term laying down the heads, this is a technique recently documented in the, book, in the Book of Mormon by William Davis in his excellent new book, Visions in a Seer Stone. Hmm. Yeah, I'll be having him on soon. Yeah, that'd be a good interview. Yeah. So another criticism I have is that the firm foundation, especially in their name, the Foundation for Indigenous Research in Mormonism, misrepresents themselves as conducting indigenous research. Meldon provides no evidence that he has consulted with the cultural resource departments or the institutional review boards of federally recognized tribes from the regions he claims as part of the Book of Mormon geography. This is what indigenous researchers do. It's part of our basic ethics. This is most important to do when conducting archeological excavations, like the one they did in 2015, looking for remains of a Zarahemla temple across the river uh, from Nauvoo, Illinois, that was apparently unsuccessful because they took all the pictures down off their website. By going in with a bulldozer and doing an archeological project without consulting with the, the local tribes is a deeply offensive ethical violation uh, and is not what someone calling themselves an indigenous researcher should be doing. Further, Meldrum fails to engage with indigenous oral histories and professional scholarship about mounds. He needs to, discuss, to engage, for example, the book I mentioned earlier uh, by Barbara Alice Mann, 
uh, Native Americans, archaeologists in the mounds. That's what an indigenous researcher would do. And Meldrum's work also celebrates and uncritically uses the work of notorious looters like Mallory and Connor. In fact, most of the items featured in his book appear to be looted, taken without the consent of indigenous descendants. Who are Mallory and, and Connor? Uh, they are uh, some of those outdated sources that we oh, use that are arguing for iron, for example, in, uh, in, in the mounds. Got it. Uh, they don't, don't obey basic stratigraphy. They were basically looting these mounds without a basic understanding of archaeology. And these are the sources he's using, which is, whoa, is like, you know, way out there. Uh, and perhaps the most troubling thing in, in the entire book to me on an ethical respect uh, is that Meldrum even proudly boasts on page 158 that he owns many copper artifacts that were likely looted from indigenous graves. Now, from an indigenous perspective, this makes Meldrum complicit in grave robbery, even if he paid for those items. And I'd like to issue a challenge to him. Would he consider returning those items? And I think if he would, it might help him in, in, engage native communities in some genuine dialogue. And I think there'd be a lot to learn and a lot that Book of Mormon studies could benefit uh, from engaging in uh, repatriation of the items uh, that have been stolen by us or someone else. Hmm. Also, Meldrum features pictures of human remains on pages 162, 172, and 174 of his photography book. These images flaunt indigenous objections to such public displays of their ancestors. This is not the type of scholarship that would qualify as indigenous research at any of today's tribes, colleges, or universities with which I have worked. Pretty strong stuff here, Thomas. Yeah, I know it, it's hard to hear, but uh, I think, you know, from somebody who spent a career working with tribal communities, these are the sorts of things that tribal communities are criticizing uh, people for. And uh, it, it, it's hard to hear and it may be surprising uh, to, to Meldrum and Neville, but I think they need to take these arguments seriously because this, this is the future of our work in Book of Mormon Studies is gonna require a more deep engagement with indigenous communities. Hmm. Now, I would say that when the poor quality of Meldrum's work in the area of my expertise, which is anthropology, makes me quite suspicious of his and Dean Sessions' claims about a universal model. And I don't have the time to go into all of that here, but if the Heartland community, Heartland group wants the scientific community to take them seriously, then they need to begin to apply some basic ethical standards to their research. Stop promoting known frauds. Stop looting archeological sites. Stop pandering to racial prejudice and white nationalism of their audiences. That would be a good first step in engaging in dialogue with, with the scientific community. And I want to make my final critique. I want to speak more religiously than scientifically. Okay. Okay. You know, and just one last thing too. You know, you had said yeah. earlier that you know it's racist. You know, and I I want to make it clear. I don't. I think what you're saying is Rod Meldrum isn't necessarily a racist. That he is spouting views that he is unaware of being racist. Would that be a, a better way of putting it? I think that's the way I framed it. Okay. okay, yeah. I just so, want to clarify. You know, that. listen to what I'm saying carefully. I yeah, chose I think, my words very carefully. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, the you have. 
the arguments that Meldrum uh, has made are racist. That's what I've said. Exactly. I think that's good that we have that clarification. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. All right. And the the Heartland model that I've reviewed does not live up to the basic morals and ethics I learned growing up as a Mormon and as a Christian. I learned to value truth, honesty, and integrity. The use of fraudulent materials, the misrepresentations of the archeological record, the inaccurate portrayals of science, the blaming the ancestors of Native Americans for an ancient Holocaust that never occurred, and the firm foundation's pretense of indigenous research do not live up to the moral standards of honesty and integrity. I also learned from the Book of Mormon that all are alike unto God. The looting of indigenous artifacts, the desecration of indigenous graves, the inappropriate display of photographs of the deceased, the perpetuation of racist ideas from the Book of Mormon, association of skin color with curses, the racialization of genetics, and the white nationalism of Heartlanders do not live up to that Mormon and Christian teaching that all are the same in the Creator's eyes. People who call themselves saints and Christians need to do better. Ironically, we need to do what the LDS essay on DNA and the Book of Mormon advises, prioritize the Book of Mormon's spiritual claims over its historical ones. Hmm. Wow. That's a good statement there. I think it's interesting. I think this is a good way of us starting the dialogue, starting yeah. the conversation in a civil way. And it's important that our audience hears the full spectrum and hears you know, Rod gave his perspective and I'll have Rod back on to come, you know, to talk about other things as well if he wants to discuss what we've discussed today. I know he's planning on going on Mormon stories. Um, and so he'll also have an opportunity to give his voice in that venue as well. So here, uh, let's talk a little bit more because you had hinted to it earlier in our conversation, which is uh, the idea of maybe making a, a contribution to the working uh, work, working hypothesis oh, what did jonathan call it i'm sorry alternative working hypothesis alternative working yeah. hypothesis yeah which i think is a is i think is a really good way of looking at it and i think this is your proposal that you would like to give as well yeah and so i'm i'm working on this uh, in a, a book manuscript and i've presented por portions of it at some sunstone conferences and so this is really the first uh, time people are going to hear hear this yeah portions of it are in here but i'm going in a lot more depth Okay, some, great. some things that I think your audience will find quite interesting. Uh, and so what I'm proposing is what we might call a, a neophyte interpretive model for the Book of Mormon. And again, I, I started to articulate that in my critique. And that is that the neophytes of Jonathan Edwards' age uh, and the neophytes of the Book of Mormon uh, show a striking similarity. Uh, and so I'm arguing that we need to read the Book of Mormon within the 18th and 19th century as a, a product of that time and place uh, and look for uh, not, not dig up graves, not uh, continue, we don't even need to do any more archeological research for this, uh, but look for Nephites among the neophytes of the 18th and 19th century. Uh, and that's what I'm engaged in doing. And I found some amazing things, uh, some really surprising things I have to say. I, and, and I'm going to give a hint of a few of them. One of the most striking is that many of the characters and the events in the Book of Mormon resemble those found in neophyte communities. 
sometimes even with similar and same names and often with a lot of uh, detail. Now, some of these aren't perfect matches. There are some differences. And I, in my approach, I think the differences are, are equally important as the similarities because the differences provide us a way of, uh, of looking at uh, the Book of Mormon from an indigenous perspective because the value of this approach is that those neophyte communities left a lot of records. Uh, those records include the diaries and journals of the missionaries, some native, some non-native, uh, and uh, books that were written by people like William Apis, for example, uh, and uh, publications by people like uh, Samson Oakham, uh, that and uh, diaries and journals of John Johnson. These or Joseph Johnson, excuse me. And these are people that we can read in their own words. And that's something that we can't do uh, with the ancient Nephites. But if we look at the neophyte communities, we can, we can hear native Christians in their own words. And so here are a few things I wanna highlight. One, uh, Samson Oakham, a Mohegan preacher, bears a striking resemblance to Samuel the Lamanite. Uh, in what he preaches, and even uh, in the name Samuel and Samson. This has been pointed out by many other researchers, I should, I should note. And my colleague, uh, Angela Baca, uh, sees similarities also in William Apis, uh, a Pequot uh, minister and neophyte. Uh, the King Noah in the Book of Mormon resembles the Jewish leader, Mordecai Noah, who attempted to establish a Jewish Indian colony in Seneca territory, not far from the home of Joseph Smith. And if you read the newspaper reports and put those along at that time that Joseph Smith would have himself probably read uh, and put that alongside the Book of Mormon accounts of uh, King Noah, all of a sudden you get this wow effect of uh, the, the connection. Mm. Kings Benjamin and Mosiah in the Book of Mormon resemble the famous Mohegan dynasty of the three Benjamins and Isaiah Uncas. And these were well known uh, at, at the time and, uh, and provide a parallel uh, to uh, the Book of Mormon uh, dynastical treatment that again, when you uh, look at what was known in the 19th century about uh, the Uncas dynasty and Benjamin Uncas in particular, uh, and Isaiah, you start to see some of the same tensions being played out in the Book of Mormon narrative. Uh, and the place name of Oneida in the Book of Mormon resembles the most famous of all neophyte communities, that of the Iroquois nation of the Oneida. Uh, in fact, the spellings used in the Book of Mormon are one of the spellings that was common in 19th century documents. Uh, and this should be especially interesting to Jonathan Neville because Jonathan Edwards sent his son to live with the Oneida in 1755 to 1756. Uh, now, Ed, Jonathan Edwards' son stayed with a man, an Irish man by the name of Sir William Johnson. Now, Sir William Johnson became a Mohawk sachem or part of the uh, elected council uh, for uh, the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, and he bears a striking resemblance to a Malachiah, a Nephite who becomes a Lamanite king in the Book of Mormon. And it isn't just the similarities between a Malachiah and Sir William Johnson, it's that the people associated with them are also similar to Book of Mormon characters. 
So not only does Sir William Johnson resemble a Malachiah, but his Mohawk wife, Molly Brandt, is much like the Lamanite queen he marries. And her brother, Joseph Brandt, and Amaron, the Book of Mormon character, were both military successors of Johnson and Amalekiah, leading people who were called kingmen. In the books, Book of Mormon is what I would call allegorical uh, reworking of uh, the American Revolution. And so we see uh, characters in these neophyte communities that resemble those uh, in the Book of Mormon. And it's not just individuals. It's also the big picture communities. So there were seven communities of neophytes who just like the seven Lamanite towns in the Book of Mormon that would become the anti-Nephi Lehi's or the people of Ammon, they buried their weapons of war, uh, a very common Iroquois practice, uh, and came together to seek refuge with the Oneida in the newly found towns of Brockton, Brotherton and New Stockbridge. New Stockbridge was founded by some of those people that Jonathan Edwards had converted to their children and grandchildren anyway. Uh, and uh, so again, there's this fascinating Jonathan Edwards connection uh, that, that I, I would encourage Neville to take a closer look at. Even the slaughter of the pacifist anti-Nephi Lehi's in the Book of Mormon resembles the experience of a neophyte community of Delaware Mohicans at Naudenhuten in 1782. Now this one in particular, there are a lot of, uh, there are similarities, but there are a lot of differences with this one. And those differences I'm articulating as well in my book, and I don't have time to go into here, but I will note that they're quite informative and that they actually expose some of the biases and prejudices of Joseph Smith in his uh, role of dictating the Book of Mormon. Well, all these different historical people who coincidentally resemble characters in the Book of Mormon were connected with three generations of the Smith family through Moore's Indian Charity School and Dartmouth College, both created by Eliezer Wheelock as a training program for missionaries to the Indians. It's kind of the, the hub, if you will, of neophyte communities of the 18th and 19th centuries. And the Smith family was directly involved. Uh, so John Smith, a cousin of Joseph Sr., was the first professor and pastor there. And uh, other research, I, I should note, have pointed out a lot of similarity between Mormon theology and his sermons. Uh, Hiram, Joseph Jr.'s brother, was a student amidst these neophytes and their missionaries in training. Uh, and uh, some of these individuals, uh, like uh, Jacob Jameson, uh, not only was he in, in school with Hiram, uh, at Moore's Charity School, but when uh, the Smith family uh, moved to New York, uh, Jacob Jameson also went to New York as well. Uh, and so there's some interesting connections that we need to dig into a little bit deeper. Hmm. And now my key point in, in just you know providing some teasers, if you will, uh, from my as yet much of it unpublished research on the Book of Mormon, is that we can find a better match for the Nephites of the Book of Mormon among 18th and 19th century neophytes than in the archaeology of ancient America. Wow. Well, uh, Thomas, this is uh, really an honor that you're giving, uh, basically hinting towards the original research, uh, research that you're doing. Also, it's multiple working hypothesis is what he called it. We were having struggling yeah. with that. Uh, and, which and, and so this is basically one of your... Uh, hypotheses that you're submitting and actually i think jonathan's going to really appreciate this uh, i yeah. think he and actually i think he'll be really pleased that 
uh, there are people in the scholarly community that are taking his work and his ideas seriously. And I think it's good that we have these conversations. Um, you know, this being a Mormon book reviews show, and we like to talk about books, I know that you have some books that you would like to kind of recommend for further reading. Um, maybe you could talk about those. Yeah, I will. And I've mentioned a couple of them already. So I will make the first part brief. I highly recommend Myra Allison Mann's work, A Seneca Descendant on Mound Builders and Native Americans. I, and I, I've recommended P. Jane Hafen and Brendan Rensink's Essays on American Indian and Mormon History. And it's important to point out that this was based on a seminar that occurred at BYU uh, that included me as a participant. Uh, and I, it, I think one of the most important books on uh, the Book of Mormon, it's not on the Book of Mormon, it's about native experiences, but three chapters really key in on the Book of Mormon. And I think uh, those need to be considered uh, in uh, these discussions. For those that want to know a little bit more about uh, anthropological perspectives on mound builders, I highly recommend this relatively new book, uh, The Mound Builder Myth, Fake History and the Hunt for a Lost White Race. This will show Mormon arguments within the, the larger context of those frauds and forgeries and stuff that I was talking about. Hmm. Uh, and then those for more of an academic uh, perspective, more of a, a, a decolonizing perspective, that is uh, indigenous research methodologies. I need to look at this book, Edward Watts, uh, Colonizing the Path, Past, Myth-Making and Pre-Columbian Whites in 19th Century America, American Writing. And again, this places the, the Book of Mormon within a larger context, uh, and particularly the role that uh, why it is that settler colonists needed to create this myth to justify uh, their expropriation of the, the, the taking of uh, native lands and resources. You know, I, we've talked about this briefly off camera. Um, I just, you, you know, you've taken a faith journey. We talked about your faith journey that you took. Uh, of course, you've talked on other podcasts about, you know, your faith journey within Mormonism. And then you talked on my program about your faith journey in regards to your engagement with evangelicalism and everything like that. Would you mind just talking a little bit about your personal faith, where you're at now in that journey? Hmm. You know, uh, I, I had, I've had times in my life where I've struggled with religion in general. I've been enthralled with it. I've been uh, repelled by it. Uh, and, you know, some of that I discussed in the, the last, last time, but I didn't really kind of bring it up to date. So, you know, in the time since that video came out, uh, DNA versus the Book of Mormon, uh, and it actually, some of this started before then, so it was around the same time. But uh, I took on a role at Edmonds Community College, now Edmonds College, I, as an anthropology instructor. And I came into a, 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 what had been a thriving relationship between Indian Heritage High School in Seattle and uh, Edmonds uh, Community College and uh, hosting an annual uh, powwow tradition. This was a celebration of Native music. Uh, arts and crafts and, and dance. Uh, and uh, the students pretty quickly came, looked to me because one of my predecessors had, had played a key role in, in this, this support of this work. 
uh, came to me to, to help sustain this tradition of powwows, which I've now done for over 20 years. And uh, that, you know, I worked at times as the advisor for our Native American Student Association. It's gone by a number of different names over the years. Uh, but this involved, you know, included a lot of intimate work with Native students. And that included a lot of invitations to important events in my Native students' lives and their families, and often involving ceremony and religious uh, components. Although I should say that Native people don't always describe these ceremonies as religious. That, that's a term that's a, kind of a, a Western European term. Uh, but uh, I now over 20 years of uh, invited participation in Native communities, often in settings uh, that, that I'm the only predominantly settler person there, uh, I've gained a deep respect for indigenous traditions uh, and particularly for the openness uh, that I, I would call it an inclusive religiosity rather than the exclusivity we see in, in some versions of Mormonism and Christianity where we have the one and only true way uh, in you know sweat lodges or in pipe ceremonies, I often been right alongside Native Mormons uh, and Native Christians and uh, people who might describe themselves as atheists or uh, who are only do Native traditional practices. The whole spectrum working together within a, a sacred uh, and ceremonial setting. Uh, and that has just had a profound impact on my view and really helped open up my approach today, which is a very inclusive approach to different religious traditions. And that's why I say, you know, I think I see uh, scriptures and sacred narratives uh, as a means to an end. And that end is, you know, to be more ethical, to care and love for each other, uh, to help those in need. Uh, those are universal values that are found in almost every religious tradition. Uh, and uh, I hold those very close and deep uh, in my heart. You know, I just, um, I just saw the way you interacted with your wife when you were at the Mormon History Association. And I was telling Rod that I saw Christ-like attributes in you. And uh, I just, I, I really, that's the word that came to my mind when I saw you, um, just so you know. And I told Rod that, and I, I just want people to understand that, you know, especially within, you know, my entering into the Mormon world, I have found that there's so many silos and bubbles and people just, there's a lot of like, look, I can talk to somebody and say, hey, what do you think of that African model for the location of the Book of Mormon? And they'll be like, yeah, it's kind of funny, an interesting theory, you know, yeah, whatever. Or Baja, California, or, or Malaysia, the Malay Peninsula theory, right? And they'll be like, that's fine. And then the second uh, you bring up Heartland, they get, oh, you know, they just get like very uh, intense and like, no, I don't want to have anything to do that. They're, they're all crazy. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, that's what's come down to. And the academic community, and the Heartlanders, we need to all just realize that you're not, you're, we're not the enemy. We're all image bearers. 
as I talked with Rod about, we're all image bearers. Let's remind ourselves of that. And um, you know, I think I think the most important thing that I think could come of these interviews is that you having lunch with Rod Meldrum. You know, I think that, that, that would that would be fun. Uh, and, and I hope that that happens. I hope that that's, this this conversation helps facilitate that kind of dialogue. Um, I will, because you mentioned my wife, yeah, I should yeah. note that this today is the three-year anniversary of the day she did not wake up and uh, was in a coma uh, for three days following that. And, you know, so it's... Uh, I just wanted to mention that it's got that kind of way weigh in very heavily on me. Uh, you know, she ended up having a uh, severe brainstem stroke at a young age and they dramatically changed our lives. She had to, luckily she came out of the coma, but uh, she had to relearn everything like swallowing, sitting up and walking and talking, even finding words and uh, being able to even remember, she has no memory of that time period in her life. And, you know, it, I, I learned a lot through that, that experience. You know, I, my wife had been the person who really taught me how to love. So <laughs> that, that helped. I, I tried to put the lesson she taught me into action, mm -hmm. but it was never easy. It, it was, it was definitely a challenge. And I found uh, times where I, I had, I had to learn patience that I didn't think I had. Uh, and it, it's been a truly profound transformative aspect of my life uh, through which we've grown much closer to each other than we ever were before. We'd never wish this thing had happened or, or, or wish it upon anybody else, but it, it has turned into an incredible growth uh, opportunity for us. I, I, could, I could see it. I witnessed that, that made an impression on me. You know, and just want to let you know, you know, it was you blessed me just to saw the way I saw how you she, she was there for you and you were there for her. And I really appreciated that. Um, so, Thomas, I really appreciate you taking your time to put together these fantastic presentations. Um, I think this is will be part of a continuing conversation because I think you have so much to contribute to the conversation. I just wondered if you had any. Uh, final words or last uh, words that you would like to say to all my audience, but also to Rod and other Heartlanders. Well, I'm sorry that I went on so long. Okay. Nice. <laughs> I, had, I had anticipated not being quite this long, but uh, I did it again. Uh, so that's, that's my final it's word. So I'm good. sorry that I spoke too much. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on, Thomas. And, uh, Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, yeah, you know, but like I tell you, I said, I'll sit down and watch a five hour presentation on on Mormon stories with a scholar. So I, I know that's what my audience does. That's what I do. So I think they're probably still waiting. Wait, no, no, don't end it now. I, I just got we, we just got started. <laughs> so either way, I just want to remind my audience to uh, like and subscribe and don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when a new video uh, comes out. Uh, folks, we're entering into the holiday season. Uh, I just want to uh, say, just be safe out there, use common sense. And, uh, you know, we're going to get through this uh, pandemic uh, together and you have yourself a great day.